Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. I'm very excited today to welcome you to this episode featuring my friend and leading constitutional law scholar in the United States, Erwin Chemerinsky, who is the founding dean and Raymond Pryke Professor of First Amendment Law at the UC Irvine School of Law and one of our country's most frequently cited experts on constitutional law. Erwin, thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure to get to talk with you. I'm going to start off with your recent LA Times op-ed. And I want to quote something you say in it and and ask you a couple questions. In the op-ed, you argue that, quote, it is both wrong and illegal to assume that a person is more likely to be dangerous because of his or her religion, national origin, race, or ethnicity. And I want to ask two questions that build on that. First of all, is it indeed incumbent upon us? Do we have to contend with the Trump administration's claim that it's not a religious-based ban? even though we have reason to believe that it is because of certain comments that he's made or that Giuliani has made about his intent. It's clear that the travel ban, both in the form of the first executive order and the second executive order, were religiously motivated. Donald Trump on the campaign trail said he wanted to have a Muslim ban. Rudy Giuliani said after the first executive order was issued that he was asked to draft a Muslim travel ban that could get through the courts. Stephen Miller, a high-level advisor to President Trump, said that there's really no difference between the second executive order and the first one. The second executive order designates six countries, all of which are between 90 and 98 percent Muslim. There's no linkage of terrorism from those countries to the United States. The only explanation seems to be it was designating countries that are most entirely comprised of Muslims. That's why already federal district courts have found that this was an impermissibly religiously motivated action. I understand why legally we're allowed to weigh intent to the degree we can discern it. But help me understand the relationship, the weight that a jurisprudence has to put on the prerogatives, which everyone agrees the president has some prerogatives vis-a-vis immigration that are unique and, and very powerful prerogatives, in relation to the weight we're supposed to put on intent, even when we can discern the intent. First, there's a 1965 federal statute that says, with regard to immigration policy, such as granting visas, there cannot be discrimination on the basis of race, religion, national origin, or country of origin. That in itself makes the travel bans illegal. Second, under the First Amendment, the government cannot act with the purpose or the effect of discriminating based on religion. Purpose or effect. All of the statements by President Trump indicate that the purpose was a Muslim travel ban. All the statements by his advisors, such as Rudy Giuliani and Stephen Miller, indicate that it was religiously motivated. And the effect is clearly to discriminate based on religion. He's designated six countries. What they share in common is they're all comprised of a population between 90 and 98 percent Muslim. Without demonstrable national security implications. It's undermining the stated intent now and illustrating the prior stated intent, which was, which was religiously discriminatory. That's exactly right. When it came to the first travel ban, 
the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit said there was no evidence that individuals from these countries were ever linked to terrorist acts in the United States or more likely to commit terrorist acts in the United States. A federal district court in Virginia as to the first travel ban quoted a large number of national security experts who previously worked in the federal government and said there's no evidence that these countries have ever been linked to terrorist activity in the United States. It's interesting. You said that the statute, forgive me if I don't quote it exactly, but that if it's either intent or effect, meaning either one of those things would suffice to disqualify it, and you can establish both. With regard to the First Amendment, the Supreme Court has said that the government cannot discriminate on the basis of religion. And the Supreme Court has said that the government violates the Establishment Clause, the Constitution, there can be no law respecting established religion, if either its purpose is to advance or inhibit religion, or if its primary effect is to advance or inhibit religion. And the travel ban is doing both. Even though it's not directed at citizens of the United States? The United States government, in its actions, cannot discriminate on the basis of religion. It's not about whom they're discriminating against. It's about who we are when we discriminate. The government in its policies must comply with the United States Constitution. What court after court has found as to both of the travel bans, and this includes judges appointed by Democratic presidents, Republican presidents, is that they were motivated by a desire to exclude Muslims. That's religious discrimination. And of course, the effect is that since the countries that are designated are overwhelmingly Muslim countries. That makes sense to me, and it suits my, my worldview. But from a lay perspective, it does beg another question. If we're not allowed to discriminate on the basis of national origin, then doesn't it call into question basically all immigration policy? I mean, don't we, don't we treat Cuba differently than we treat England, for example? Through much of American history, immigration policy was country-based. There were quotas from particular countries. Quite tragically, as a result, many who were trying to flee Nazi persecution were turned away, only to die in concentration camps. In 1965, Congress changed that policy. And Congress said, we don't want immigration policy to be based on national origin, or country of residence, or race, or religion. Now, Congress, if it chooses, can have a statute that overrides that general law. So if Congress wants to have a specific law with regard to Cuba, it can do so. If Congress wants to have a specific law with regard to particular countries, it can do so. But the federal statute generally says we're no longer going to have a foreign policy in immigration based on national origin. And executive orders under the executive authority are still subject to the existing statute unless Congress itself should make a new law. Any executive order must be consistent with both the statute and the United States Constitution. The Trump executive orders are inconsistent with both statutes and the Constitution. All right. Still talking about the Trump administration, your party to the suit against President Trump on the grounds that his business interests I don't want to overstate it, so you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what you're saying is that his business interests not only demonstrably, but also inevitably put him in a position of accepting what the Constitution calls emoluments, which I think are effectively any payment or benefit from a foreign power. So help us through the technicalities of your suit, and then bring us home and tell us why it's so important, why the 
why the dean of a major law school is dedicating his time and resources to this, to this effort. There are two provisions in the Constitution that use the word emoluments that are relevant in this context and for this lawsuit. One you allude to, it's found in Article One, Section 9 of the Constitution. It says that a person who holds a position in the federal government cannot receive a present or an emolument from a foreign state. Those who wrote the Constitution were very worried about foreign influence in the new nation. Emolument simply means benefit. Every day, Donald Trump is receiving benefits from foreign states, such as through hotels across the world. To pick one example, Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. is 76% owned in the name Donald Trump. Every time a foreign government rents facilities there, rents hotel rooms, Donald Trump is benefiting from a foreign government. He's receiving emoluments. There's a second provision in the Constitution, sometimes called the Domestic Emoluments Clause. It's found in Article 2, Section 1, and it says that the president can receive no emoluments from the federal government other than the salary that's paid for the office. Donald Trump owns buildings that are renting space to the federal government. He has an office building in New York that's renting an entire floor to the federal government. He's receiving benefits then from the federal government besides his salary. Why am I involved in the lawsuit? I think one of the most important principles of the rule of law is that no one, not even the president, is above the law that the president has to comply with the Constitution. Donald Trump has been violating the Constitution since the moment he took the oath of office and became president of the United States. How are you feeling about your chances in court? Are you allowed to talk about that? I feel optimistic. I think we have a very strong lawsuit. I have no doubt that on the facts, Donald Trump is violating both of these emoluments clauses. I think there are procedural issues that will come up, such as whether our client has standing to be able to sue in court. There's good Supreme Court precedent on our side for that. Articulate for us exactly your claim to standing. Standing is the question of whether a particular person is the proper party to bring him out of court for adjudication. Standing requires that the plaintiff show that he or she was personally injured. The plaintiff in the suit against Donald Trump is Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. There's a 1982 Supreme Court case, Havens Realty versus Coleman, that says that a not-for-profit organization has an injury sufficient for standing if they're challenging illegal practices that they say distorted its resources, changed how it was spending. Well, Citizens Responsible in Ethics in Washington say that Trump's violation of the Emoluments Clause has very much distorted how it's spending, changed its priorities. And I think under this case, is clearly standing. Trump's presidency and this conflict of interest or the, this violation of the Emoluments Clause forces this non-governmental organization to direct its own resources to address this problem because it's this NGO's mission. And in forcing it to channel its resources in that way, it is distorting or, or somehow detouring in its... That's exactly right. And that's what's alleged in the complaint. And that's what Havens Realty versus Coleman in 1982 said is permissible. Now, I think it's also possible that down the road we'll add in as plaintiffs competitor hotels, mm -hmm, right. maybe unions at competitor hotels, maybe members of Congress, maybe state attorney generals. But at this stage, I think that Citizens Responsible and Ethics in Washington has standing based on the theory just as you explained it.
Before we return to the Bully Pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, Synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning for adults and teens, including online courses, live video interviews, and enhanced podcast episodes with text and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to our podcast. You recently wrote an oft-cited book in 2014 called The Case Against the Supreme Court, which is already, you can tell that you're catching eyes with a title like that. A previous guest on the Bully Pulpit podcast, this very podcast, is a colleague of yours, Eric Siegel of Georgia State University, who shares similarly directed challenges or critiques, I should say, of the Supreme Court. And I found the resonance really nice. So Eric Siegel's critique is primarily about the psychological human structure uh, and the problem of having unreviewable power given to a person who has that power for life. You combine those two things, that it's, it's not reviewable and it's life tenure, and you can't possibly get the kind of adjudication that you want, even though it's clear why they thought they might. Your critique is perhaps embodied best in this quote, early on in the book, where you're criticizing the track record of the Supreme Court in relation to African Americans, and you say, quote, an institution that exists especially to protect minorities did exactly the opposite, consistently upholding laws that harmed minority races. So I want to ask you, in our current political climate, where hate crimes are on the rise, uh, anti-Semitic activity in particular is on the rise with shameful attacks on synagogues and cemeteries, not to mention other groups. In this context, what should the Jewish community be watching for in terms of constitutional developments that we are beginning to get an inkling of now as the Trump administration is getting traction and its agenda is becoming clear? I think that the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment is enormously important for the Jewish community. It's often been said that, in the words of Thomas Jefferson, it is meant to create a wall that separates church and state. The reality is, if the American government becomes aligned with religion, it's not going to be the Jewish religion, and I don't think it should be aligned with any religion. I worry that the Trump administration is going to do many things that obliterate this wall that separates church and state. And I worry about whether the Supreme Court is going to stand up to it. So the Trump administration very much is pushing vouchers as a way of dealing with school problems, vouchers that can be used in parochial schools. And overwhelmingly mean the government is then providing subsidies to Christian evangelical and Catholic schools. I think that the Trump administration's positions with regard to immigration reflect strong religious discrimination. And I think the Jewish community should be very concerned because it's so easy to take the things that Trump and his advisors are saying when they talk about Muslims and just substitute the word Jews for that. So these are some of the things that I think are so important for the Jewish community to be vigilant about in the Trump administration. Do you think that, Trump aside, that the Supreme Court has been, for the last generation, less protective of that wall in general? I think there was a time when the Supreme Court very much enforced the wall that separates church and state. I think that's been lessened in recent years. Um, I argued a case in the Supreme Court in 2005 that challenged a Ten Commandments monument 
that sits right between the Texas State Capitol and the Texas Supreme Court. Right. And one of the things I learned is that there isn't one version of the Ten Commandments. That yes, the <laughs> Christian version and the Jewish version and the Catholic version and are very different. And there's two versions of Torah itself. And this was the Lutheran version of the Ten Commandments, <laughs> right well. at the Capitol there. And I think the idea of putting religious scripture from one set of religions at the seat of government is a violation of the Establishment Clause. I lost five to four. Um, when there was a challenge to a cross in a park in the Mojave Desert, the Supreme Court reversed. The Supreme Court has refused to allow challenges to go forward for government aid to parochial schools. So I think that the court has very much lessened the wall that separates church and state. I worry that the Trump administration and the justice Donald Trump puts on the Supreme Court could obliterate that wall. And I think that has to be a concern for all of us, but especially for the Jewish community. I'm not aware of powerful alliances amongst religious and atheist communities who have a very distinct stake in agreeing with you. But I do think that atheists, Seventh-day Adventists, Jews, Muslims, lots of minorities, lots of people who have a lot to lose when that wall gets eroded. I don't think we've been fronting it, and I, I fear it may be a kind of cultural, I don't want to say cowardice because that's perhaps too hard, but it's a, it's, a, it's a lack of standing up in a culture where we might fear that we're viewed as attacking religion. It's something that's on my mind as well, and a lot, I think a lot of Jewish people. So I have an axe to grind, like okay. this crazy axe that I want to tell you about it because okay. you, you actually know something about it, and then you can tell me if I am justified or if I am missing something. So you'll hear me out. For the sake of disclosure, if I were to write down all of my political positions, I would, I would probably be center-left-left. So I have my biases. But I have a particular beef with the state's rights position as articulated in the, the, the political culture of today in America. So here's, here's my beef. I see the state's rights position. I think people of goodwill who adopt the state's rights position often couch their position in terms of liberty, freedom. I think that what they're saying is that they want to assert states' constitutional sovereignty as a bulwark against what they imagine might be an overweening federal government that risks being tyrannical. And I would go so far as to say that I can see their argument in the Constitution. I can see why the states' rights camp legitimately points out that the Constitution limits its own power in this regard uh, by means, for example, of the Tenth Amendment, which says that the power is not delegated to the United States, meaning the federal government, by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. And I think that thus far, I kind of say, you know, so far so good for states' rights. I, I get it. But what I don't understand, and here's where it gets cultural, political, not just constitutional, and I want you to help me map them onto each other. What I don't understand is why people who claim to be advocating liberty, why they should be so vociferous in favor of states' rights over individual rights. That, that drives me crazy, because if you're going to make a cry for liberty, why would you just favor one government over another? Why wouldn't you favor individual rights, which are also articulated and protected in the Constitution, also in the Tenth Amendment itself, and certainly in the Ninth and the Fourteenth Amendments? So to me, the case in point is gay rights. I can't understand why a person advocating liberty would favor the power of a state, lowercase state or a capital S state, over the rights of an individual in the name of liberty. It, stri it strikes me as completely backwards. So am I being fair in criticizing the state's rights position as being self-contradictory 
claiming liberty, but in fact favoring government power over individual rights as a method merely to dampen social change? Or am I missing something constitutionally or culturally that would help me refine or, or, or better articulate a more coherent argument? Throughout American history, states' rights has been used by conservatives to try to oppose progressive change. In the early 19th century, those who opposed abolition of slavery did so not by defending slavery, but by claiming states' rights. From the 1890s to 1936, the Supreme Court struck down so many federal laws, including the first law prohibiting use of child labor in the name of states' rights. In the 1950s and in the 1960s, the opponents of desegregation did so not by defending segregation, but by states' rights. Now, as you allude to, those who oppose marriage equality for gays and lesbians have done so in the name of states' rights. More recently, when the Trump administration rescinded Department of Education guidelines prohibiting discrimination against transgender students, they did so in the name of states' rights. So in answer to your question, you have to look at the context and how states' rights have been used as a guise for opposing progressive change, often that we later regard was truly essential for being a just society. But there's no reason that states' rights have to be used that way. States' rights could be used to advance liberty. I think what you're going to see over the first few years of the Trump presidency is many repressive Trump actions will be opposed in the name of states' rights. One of the Trump executive orders threatened to take away any federal funds from so-called sanctuary cities. Well, the argument that's going to be made in response is that the sanctuary cities because of states' rights, have the ability to decide not to cooperate with federal immigration officials. So states' rights doesn't have to be pro-liberty or anti-liberty. Just in most of American history, it's been rights regressive, liberty regressive, not promoting rights or liberty. Does that get to your question? It does, it does. And it does seem to confirm my impression that insofar as we're talking about the, the better part of American history, looking backwards, and certainly most recently with marriage equality, there is something self-contradictory about claiming liberty when in fact what you're doing is you're invoking one government's power over you instead of another government's power over you. I find that noxious. I've There's always the question of who should decide. Who should decide whether or not states can prohibit same-sex marriage? Who should decide whether states can require segregation? Going back to early American history, who should decide whether slavery should be eliminated? States' rights advocates say that there's benefits to having this decided at the state rather than the national level. States are closer to the people. They're more likely to reflect popular sentiments. On the other hand, there are all sorts of places where we say it doesn't matter what states want. We're not going to tolerate it. Isn't that the definition of a right? A right is not something that a government gives you. It's something that it maybe defends for you. That's much more controversial because where rights come from is something we could have a long conversation about. Is it that people possess them as natural rights or are they bestowed by the federal government? I think without getting to that jurisprudential debate, the idea is sometimes protecting states' rights is very regressive in terms of liberty. But it could also be positive in terms Context of Context matters. And, and yeah, states can also protect more rights than the federal government. As an example, there's no right under the First Amendment to the United States Constitution to use privately owned shopping centers for speech purposes. 
But the California Supreme Court has said, under the California Constitution, there is a right to use private shopping centers for speech purposes. So there you have an instance where the state constitution has gone further than the United States to Constitution. Individual rights. That's right. I want to ask you to close with the story of a case that you think that every non-lawyer out there needs to know, and it needs to be in their consciousness as a citizen and care about it. There's so many cases that I could use as an example. It's tempting to pick some of the more famous ones, like Brown versus Board of Education. Everyone should know that case. That's, of course, where the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional laws requiring segregation of schools. And everyone should know that case because it shows us how the judiciary can make such a difference in American society. I always tell my students, this is the case that shows them that they as lawyers really can change the world. Or I could pick Gideon versus Wainwright. Many people are familiar with it because of the book, the movie, Gideon's Trumpet, where the Supreme Court said that anyone who's facing a trial with a possible prison sentence has a right to a lawyer. That's the Supreme Court making sure that anyone who might go to prison has the protection of counsel. But let me pick a case in a very different direction, because to me it shows how government abuse of power can often go unremedied. Let me pick as an example a Supreme Court case from 1982 called City of Los Angeles versus Lyons. Adolph Lyons was a 24-year-old African-American man. He was stopped by police office about 2 in the morning for a burnout taillight. An officer ordered him out of his car. An officer slammed Lyons' hands above his head. Lyons complained to the police officer that his keys were cutting into the skin of his palm. An officer then administered a chokehold on Adolph Lyons and rendered him unconscious. Lyons awoke. He had urinated and defecated. He was spitting blood and dirt. The police officer gave him a traffic citation and allowed him to go. Lyons did some research and discovered to that point 16 people in Los Angeles, most all like him, African-American men, had died from police use of the chokehold. Lyons sued the city of Los Angeles for an injunction to stop the police from using the chokehold except where necessary to protect the officer's life or safety. The Supreme Court ordered Lyons' case dismissed. The Supreme Court said Lyons lacked standing to seek an injunction because he could not show that he personally was likely choked by the police again in the future. The Supreme Court said a person like Lyons who's seeking an injunction against police behavior or against any government misconduct must show a likelihood of personal future injury. This case has been that many illegal government practices cannot get remedied. It's especially been true with regard to trying to stop police abuses. And to me, the reason I picked this case in answer to your question is it's not familiar to most people. The rights that we have under the Constitution are meaningful only if they can be enforced. And unless the courts are there to enforce the rights, the words of the Constitution aren't any more than ink on parchment. That's great. Erwin, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.